0: I'm Travis Chapel, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network podcast.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network with Travis Chapel. My name is Eric Skrasinski, and I am Travis's producer. And I'm so excited that we are doing these compilation episodes again. On this episode, you're not going to hear from one, not two. You're going to hear from three different entrepreneurs giving their billion-dollar advice. First up, we're going to hear from Tillman Fertitta who is the chairman and CEO of Landry's Incorporated and Golden Nugget Hotel and Casinos. He's a Houston Rockets owner, CNBC's billion dollar buyer and author. Next up, we're going to hear from Tom Bilyeu, a filmmaker and serial entrepreneur who founded Quest Nutrition with the goal of ending metabolic disease and adding value to people. Tom now helps solve the problem of poor mindset through his media studio impact theory. His goal is to influence the cultural subconscious by creating content that empowers people. And last but not least, Travis sits down with Jeff Hoffman. Jeff is a successful entrepreneur, proven CEO, motivational speaker, and film producer. You're not going to want to miss one second of this episode. But first, if you understand the value of a podcast, but you don't have the time the resources or the team to get one started then have our team create one for you with our done for you podcast production service just visit travischapel.com done for you and we'll see if you're a good fit for our done for you podcast production service all right let's get into the episode.
0: What was it like for you transitioning it from being in high school into being a young adult? Like talk to me about, you know, college jobs or your first, your first restaurant that you started. What was that timeline in there?
2: Well, I mean, you get out of school and I was even, you know, doing businesses while I was in school and, you know, I did a little retail business then I started building homes and. And then I even did the direct selling business, which is really big today with like Shackley Vitamins and one of my first Cadillac at 21 years old, that what it gave you the ability to do is you learn how to speak in front of people, you learn how to approach people, you learn how to communicate. And, uh, and at the same time, you are learning all the other business attributes of it. But, uh, it, you know, I was doing homes that I was then I hit the video game business right that gave me a lot of cash flow. Then you start building little developments. And and then I built my first hotel when I was 26 years old, which I still own today. Uh, then the world, the development world started falling apart when I was in my late 20s. And and uh, that's when you had all the S&L crisis and all the banks failed. And that's why banks are too big today. It really came out of Texas and the southwest that. They had to get other banks to acquire you, and uh, that—that's when uh, I had—I had invested in a restaurant, and uh, I knew the restaurant business because my dad had a single restaurant in Galveston, Texas, and I worked there, and I totally understood it. And uh, when you couldn't do any more development because the banks weren't lending money, uh, my partners were all fighting, and I was just an investor, and I bought them all out in 1986, and. That I'll build restaurants for a few years and then at that point is when uh, restaurant and chain restaurants became real hot and that's when mm-hmm. outback and and cheesecake factory and uh, Brinker which is chili that's when all of these companies kind of developed and including my company landry's and I took the company public in 93 and all of a sudden you wake up one morning you're worth a hundred million dollars I owned hundred percent of it And the rest is history. And I took it private in 10, but, you know, grew it from a $30 million revenue company in in 92 to, uh, you know, a $2 billion revenue company when I took it uh, private in 2010 over the next 17 years. And today I've grown it to a $4 billion revenue company.
0: Was was your intention from the very beginning to grow the restaurant business that big? Or was it just kind of taking it moment by moment and
2: setting more and more goals? You, you always take everything moment by moment and, and continue to set goals and and be very opportunistic. And, and I would say the biggest thing about being an entrepreneur is being very opportunistic. And I think that's what I've done probably better than most. Hmm. Got it. So
0: I'm curious to know about your transition from, you know, your first restaurant into your second one. And was that more difficult of a transition to go from, you know, one to two to three than it was to go from, you know, 50 to 60 to 70?
2: Oh, no, it's easy, you know, to go from 50 to 60 to 70. Uh, Matter of fact, I had one, then I had a second one, then third, three and four, uh, never hit the way i want it so let's just call those failures and then i had a great run of number five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve something like that so mm. uh you know you, there's a as i say there's a paddle for everybody's ass and i could have easily quit then but mm. i felt like i learned from my mistakes and uh you know just kept plowing ahead
0: so after building a restaurant Empire, really? I mean, you—you on paper are the world's richest restaurateur, right? So, after building this whole empire, where along the line did the desire uh, and commitment to purchase the Houston Rockets come in?
2: You know, it all happened. You know, I was a big fan of the Rockets. uh, You know, all through this time, I was a minority partner in the '80s. Uh, The first time I made money, uh, I I was a little bit involved and. You know, it's kind of like the old big box theory. You know, if you're going to go open up 50 restaurants, you got to go find 50 general managers, and and those 50 restaurants are maybe going to do 25 million in EBITDA. And and if you go do a casino, you only have to find one general manager, and it makes 50 million dollars. So you go to the big box theory, and 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 you know, uh, what gave me the opportunity to buy the Rockets and pay more than anybody else had ever paid for a sport franchise in America, you know, was the fact that that, I owned 100% of my company. It's probably the, if not the largest single shareholder company in America, it's easily in the top two or three, but everybody seems to have one partner and I don't have any. Um, So I was able to uh, go to my lenders and take a big dividend out of the company because when you buy a professional sports team you can only borrow a couple of hundred million dollars on the team, a few hundred million. And so you need to come up with that other, if you're paying 2 billion, you better find a way to come up with that other billion seven. And uh, (laughs) I had enough equity in my company and it was strong enough that I could take out, you know, a pretty good size dividend besides the capital and equity that I already had. How much
0: did that purchase mean to you? I mean, growing up in Galveston, you're a Houston local, right? So, um, obviously you were a fan, like you just said, for a lot longer than you've been the owner. So, um, w- was it ever, was it ever on your mind that you might possibly end up buying a different NBA team or would you have even considered buying a different NBA team? Or was it just like, I'm, I'm a, such a Rockets fan. It has to be the Rockets. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed.
2: No, believe it or not, I'd looked at other teams, but I, you know, I knew the owner well. I sat next to him and uh, I just didn't have a desire to own a team in another market. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, of, of the what 94 professional major sports teams, football, basketball, baseball, I'm not going to throw hockey into this, even though it's definitely a major sport. Uh, very few people get to own a team in their hometown, uh, cause mm-hmm. it's just wrong timing or whatever. So to own the Rockets in your hometown is just a, you know, a, a great honor. And it's, it you, you're held very accountable owning a team in your hometown and, uh, it's very exciting, and it's something that uh, is a is a great tr- dream come true. If yeah. there was anything on my bucket list that I always said I wanted to do, from hosting many presidents in my home to you know ringing the New York Stock Exchange before I was forty, but being in the Texas Business Hall of Fame before I was forty, and then getting on the Forbes 400 and moving up to the 150 range today. Uh, I would have said the only thing that I really didn't accomplish business wise is that I never got to own a professional sports team. So uh, my dream got to come true. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that that's
0: the big thing. I, I've been a basketball fan and uh, player my whole life, and um, that that right there is the the dream right there, like the dream business to to own one.
2: Um, would, would a- absolutely, but you know, let me tell you something that's kind of interesting. Is 25 years ago. I was a minority partner and I bid on the team and I lost out on it. And it was an $80 million purchase price that I was doing with some other individuals. And uh, you know, it's kind of funny and you can't look back. And so here 25 years later, I'm able to buy the team, but instead of paying 80 million, I paid 2.2 billion, but you know what? But then maybe I don't chances are though i don't grow a company that's worth billions of dollars and so cuz i'm focused on the rockets so mm. you know t- you know the timing wasn't right then but but you know i probably don't accomplish everything else i accomplish in my entrepreneurial life if that doesn't happen right
0: right yeah everything happens for for a reason at some point along along the road for sure so coming coming into this season Tillman this is just a just taking all business aside okay this is a selfish question that I'm asking because I'm a basketball fan okay Uh, how how confident are you going into this season with the team that you guys have put together now
2: you know we felt really confident the last two years and I think it's kind of a fact that you know this is what I say. You got to build a team where you hope you're one of the top three or four teams and then you need luck. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. And, yeah. you know, let's be honest. Okay. Uh, in the last few years, uh, Golden state has been lucky in the sense that they didn't have the injuries and the other teams did mm-hmm. just like us losing Chris Paul for the sixth and seventh game two years ago. Right. Well, this year it went the other way. And, and, uh, uh, you know, their players got hurt and Toronto's didn't, mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, I don't think you could say, Oh, well there, this was absolutely the best team Toronto, but you know right. what? You get to be one of the top three, four or five best teams. And then you need a little luck. Well, I think what we've done this year with Russell, we're going to be one of the top three or four best teams in the league. And now we need a little luck. So yeah. <laughs> I would like to be lucky and good.
3: The, the weird thing about being 22 is you feel at 22 the way you feel at 42, which is I'm as old as I'm ever going to be. My whole life has led me to this moment. This is the sum total of my life. You don't feel like when I think of a 22 year old now, I think they're a kid like, oh my God, your brain hasn't even finished developing yet. So, but you don't feel like that when you're in it. So it felt like my entire life was geared towards filmmaking I believe at that time that you're either good at something or you're not. That, you know, I thought of filmmaking the way most people think of singing. You either have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. It's not something you really teach. Like, sure, you could help somebody with the technicalities Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But you either can sing or you (laughs) can't. And so... You can get, like, a little bit better. Right. And I thought, I went into film school thinking, I'm really good at this. Mm -hmm. This is, like, what I'm meant to do. And then my senior thesis shows me the truth, which is that I had no talent. And so that was very hard to swallow. At first, it was uh, an absolute slide towards depression. I didn't know where I was going to go with my life. Everything that was so clear now, I felt hopelessly lost. When you're in film school, especially USC, you feel connected to the film world. I remember standing one time, maybe even closer than you and I are to George Lucas, mm. and for like 30 minutes. And I just thought, yeah, like you're here. You, you, It just feels like, even though you don't quite know how it's going to happen, you feel like it's going to happen. Right, right. I'm Proximity, I've got the talent. And then I graduate, I have no more proximity, and I went out on a note where I'm like, I have no talent. So hmm. edging towards depression, I'm dirt poor at the time. You moved like back into your parents' place? No, 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 no. no. I, I stayed here in LA, okay. and I'm living in an apartment complex. I can't really afford furniture, um, and... I mean, to really drag this out. I was living with another guy. He's like, can my girlfriend come and stay with us for a week? That turned into two years. And then finally I moved out because you're getting outvoted. (laughs) And so you're just like, this is a nightmare. So I find myself in this really dingy part of town living by myself for the first time, can't afford furniture, and I would just come home from work and lay face down on the floor. And it was a period in my life I call, I was the king of remedial jobs. Mm -hmm. And I would intentionally seek out jobs where I knew I'd be smarter than the person interviewing because my self-esteem was so fragile. I needed to... Be pumped up where the yeah. person interviewing would be like, Why are like you're too smart for this? What are you doing here? Right. And I lived for that moment. So I had like a string of really dumb jobs, including selling video games retail. So I was just the guy behind the counter. I had a degree in filmmaking, but I'm the guy behind the counter when you come to buy used video games. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> and that was my existence, really, really dark time in my life. And at this point I began to realize this doesn't end anywhere good. Right. And in, in um, college, I'd really become a voracious reader. And so I start reading about the brain. Okay. And as I'm reading about it, it was right, this is the late 90s, there's this hotly debated issue about brain plasticity. And now people just, yeah, yeah, the brain's plastic, you can create new neurons. Till the day you die, you can learn new stuff, all that. But back then some people were saying it was real, other people were saying that it was totally fake and, Just and a theory at that yeah, point I like that by the time you're like 12 you're like pruning neur- neurons and you know you're never going to become great at something unless you showed a natural predilection for it. Hmm. So I'm like I choose to believe that the people that say that you can learn new things are right even though nobody's sure because if they're right, then I have hope for my future. And if they're wrong, I literally don't know what to do with my life. Okay. And that was like too scary to face. So I found my way into personal development out of desperation. I didn't want to become depressed. And so I start getting into like Tony I'm sorry to interrupt that, uh, but I, I really want to touch on this because it's,
0: I find that it's something that, that gets brought up a lot in all these interviews is that there was, there was a really big low point that brought on this necessity to jump into personal development and make yourself better and like face your demons. Do you think that the enemy of rising to your potential is then mediocrity? Because I feel like if you are not in that point, I I don't see as many people making the decision when things are just kind of comfortable to jump into personal development and like really reach their goals.
3: Yeah, I, I think that mediocrity is the thing people have to fear, not failure. And most people spend their time being afraid of failure but failure is the most information-rich data stream you will ever encounter. Like in the failure, if you're willing to look at it, you're going to be like, oh, I see what we did wrong. I see how things you know, came undone. I can learn from that and I can do better next time. But when it is that you just aren't doing anything, then the way that days blend into months, blend into years, like there's just this numbness to things mm. and people get caught in that. And all of a sudden it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. fifty, And then they're just like, there's nothing I can do. It's already passed. It's who I am. And that scares the life out of me. Yeah. Yeah. The regret. Right. I don't even think about it as regret. I just think about it as like doing cool shit and pushing yourself allows you to feel something neurochemically. That's awesome. Yeah. And you just missed out on a lot of years of that because you got in that numbness of the routine hmm. and I imagine most of those people will have regret on their deathbeds, but man, it's the day-to-day that scares me. It's like the day-to-day, just the missed opportunity of you could have felt rad about yourself and yet you're stewing in this. Like The thing that really worries me, if it were just the people, everything is sort of okay, I could actually like whatever. That's not a big deal. Maybe Mm -hmm. you just wanted a stress-free life. It's that people's tolerance for not okay is pretty horrendous. And the depths to which some people will go before they force themselves to make a change and start doing hard things is pretty scary. Yeah. And so when I think about doing the hard things, which most people aren't prepared to do, it's like, you've really got to train yourself to do that, to, to break out of this stuff. Even though one day they'll look back on it and say, that's actually pretty easy. Um, it feels hard because you have to face your inadequacies. Got it.
0: Got it. So going back to the story, you start reading a bunch of books about the brain and find out that humans are the ultimate adaptation machine, like something that you always say. So then what was the next step from there jumping into this, this, uh, career at this software company?
3: Well, that was me really wanting to control the art. So by that point, I, um, I'm reading about brain plasticity. I've chosen to believe that it's real. I start teaching. And as I'm teaching film, I realize I can help them make their films better. Now I'm having to work my ass off and, If you've ever taught, like, teaching is crazy. I don't understand how it's not one of the highest-paid professions. The amount of work you have to do outside of the class is crazy. Right. So... I was teaching during the day and then basically researching and trying to put lesson plans and not wanting to embarrass myself the next day because I was like, I'm the guy that failed at my senior thesis. So it's not like I have this figured out. So at night I'm like going crazy and I'm really starting to understand what my teachers were trying to teach me. I was starting to understand where I went wrong with my film. Like it was all starting to come together. And then I would tell them what I'm learning and their films would get better. And Mm. so I'm like, okay, hold on. If I can help them make right. their films better, I can help me make my films better. So that like is hanging above my head in the thought bubble, and these two successful entrepreneurs come across my path, and they say, "Look, man, you're coming to the world with your hand out. If you want to control the art, you're going to have to control the resources. So come with us and get rich." And I thought that sounds amazing. How did you meet them? So they saw me giving a talk um, about film and media and how it can influence people. So obviously made enough impression on them for them to come to you and say, Hey, come work with us. Correct. So they were like, we need a copywriter. Seemed like you'd be good at that. So Mm -hmm. why don't you come and join us? So I did that and They said, but don't think of yourself as a copywriter. You can have any position in the company you want. So we are always looking for partners and we settle for employees. I Hmm. thought, whoa, that's so cool. So I saw them make that offer to dozens of people and nobody was ever, like they couldn't see it through. Like some people would sort of move like they were doing it, but like when it got hard, they wouldn't. And I went all the way in.
0: Hmm. And so at this point, the, the end goal is the money. Right. A thousand percent. So the
3: money was going to fund what is kind of created now, which I, I did not unfortunately have this vision. Okay. I just wanted to make movies. Okay. So it. it was I wanted to make any cool story, whatever. I didn't have a big why. And so all I thought about every day was getting rich, getting rich, getting rich. That was it. I want to get rich. I told my wife, and make you rich. Like that was yeah. I was literally focused on dollars and cents. I can't tell you how many times I would take a calculator out while waiting for a movie to start and be like, all right, if I became partner and I got this percentage and we sold for this much, you know, like how much money would we have? And my wife and I used to do that over and over and over.
0: I'm curious, was it difficult to frame your mindset to allow yourself to say, I want to get rich coming from
3: like a lower middle-class household? Definitely not. Growing up in the eighties, man. and, And this is something where I really disconnect with people now who are like, like the accumulation of wealth is evil, and all that. Yeah. It's like whoa, whoa, whoa! Like it is a powerful resource, mm-hmm. but it's just a resource. Like yeah. you can do dumb shit with it. You can do things that are bad. You can do things that are ugly. But you can also do things that are insanely beautiful. Right. And when you, the fascinating thing to me about um, like charity is. People really get excited about the charity. But what they don't realize is they're just spending dollars that were made in something that they Mm -hmm. say they hate. So it's like, well, it's not the generation of the money. It's what's being done with the money that people Mm -hmm. have beef with. Fair enough. And I think that really that's we're moving into a new era where it matters what you do with your money. Yeah, there's there's almost like this culture of like
0: wealth shaming where it's like, oh, you drive a nice car, must mean that you're a dick.
3: Yes, you know, it's like, and, and that, oh, <laughs> that will hold people back. Like They're going to struggle financially yeah, because okay. they have this weird fucking story about money. Mm-hmm. And so that actually worries me not for myself, because if you can deliver value, you can always make money. Mm -hmm. But I worry for people who have an ugly story about money. So they're never going to pursue getting out of that terrifying place of living paycheck to paycheck, never being able to amass enough money, just be comfortable. I'm not saying people have to want to be a millionaire, Mm -hmm. but good Lord, like having six months cash on hand, like, trying to work up in your company. or right. taking, you know, less upfront pay so that you can get equity. Like there's so many things that you can do, yep. but you have to have a story about money's beautiful. Money is this thing that facilitates and I have a beautiful dream and I need the money to facilitate that. Right. So impact theory being certainly in my life, the example, right? I want to pull people out of the matrix by giving them an empowering mindset. The only reason I'm able to do this is because I generated so much wealth. Mm. So it's like, ah, like, and, we've now touched so many people's lives. I'm talking people like grabbing me, crying, like I was going through a divorce. You're the only thing that got me through. There was this one guy grabbed me, yoked, the kind of guy you have just seen, good looking dude, young, ripped. And he pulls me aside and he's like trying to be real quiet. And he just starts crying. And he's like, I want to commit suicide, dude. And I don't know the way out of it. So it's like the fact that the content is like helping him and helping him process. And you just think, fuck, like this is This is why money is so powerful, because it allows you, if you have a beautiful dream, it allows you to build something beautiful.
4: I do see a lot of people that say, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur, and they have no problem to solve. They just want to be an entrepreneur. That doesn't work. It works when there's something in the world that's driving you nuts, and you got to fix it. Hmm.
0: Hmm. So uh, was this first company, was that kind of the segue into Priceline? How, How did that come about?
4: no uh priceline didn't exist then for for several for me i was involved in several more startups before we ever got to that one but okay. for my personal journey that is definitely what got me interested in the travel industry because when we started digging in the back of the travel industry right to solve this problem we started seeing all the inefficiency in the industry and saying man this industry could definitely be streamlined and take the fat out of the middle and take the cost out of the middle so That is what working on the ticket printers in the first place is what got me interested in trying to uh, make, you know, one of the world's biggest global industries travel more efficient.
0: Yeah. So what was the timeline here? So uh, how how old were you about when you were doing the kiosk thing? How long did it take you to transition into creating uh, into creating Priceline? And would you say that Priceline is like one of the more successful ventures that you've had?
4: Yeah, so I was in my 20s when I was doing that. I had an engineering, a corporate job, and I hated it. I was an engineer at a big engineering company. And again, a DNA thing. I just couldn't work in that infrastructure and bureaucracy in the case of the company I worked for. So I was only in my 20s, and I quit. And when I started that first startup, and we were very lucky that the company was acquired three years later. Uh, we sold it. Um, and so I continued to work on some other startup ideas, some that worked and some that didn't (laughs) along the way Um, before, like for example, we got this crazy idea that uh, you could, you don't have to go to the mall to buy a sweater. You have a computer at home. You could buy one on this new thing called the internet. (laughs) That idea failed because we built an internet shopping site way before anyone knew what the internet was. Um, That transition, that failure into another startup I did, which was internet banking. And we created some of the first internet banking technology and that one was successful. We had banks all over the US, Europe and uh, South America using the product and we sold that company. And then there was a basically an inventor, a guy named Jay Walker up in Connecticut. And Jay is the one that had the intellectual property of a reverse auction. The concept of bidding on unsold inventory, naming your price. That was Jay's patent and Jay's idea. Hmm. So Jay is the one that started calling a team of people, and he's the one who assembled a team to go build Priceline. Um, But the timing was perfect, uh, because at the beginning, when we all got there, got to Priceline, the Internet was brand new, but now people were starting to feel comfortable using it, and travel was still this inefficient industry uh, that could be disintermediated using the Internet. So it was a good idea, but it was also the right place at the right time, and it was just a really fun ride.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what's your involvement with all of that stuff now?
4: Um, Really none because I, uh, from, you know, we had companies, I've been involved in companies, you know, later I did another internet company called uBid.com that I was the CEO of. That was uh, like the fifth largest auction site on the internet. But we've had a combination, some that didn't work, companies that we sold and companies we took public. And about five years ago was when I made a commitment to giving back. So I left all my companies then and said, I'm going to spend some years of my life giving back for the blessings I've received from the field of entrepreneurship by mentoring entrepreneurs. So I've been on like a five-year world tour of mentoring the last five years and just trying to help other people start their companies and achieve their dreams. So I'm, I'm not involved in any of those companies at this point.
0: Really cool. So, so now you're doing a lot more travel. We kind of talked about this a little bit off recording as well. What's one of the one of your favorite places to travel to, Jeff?
4: Well, I, I tell you what. I think you know one of my childhood goals was before I die, for my life to have been well lived. I decided this that I want to visit 50 countries in my lifetime. Um, <clears throat> by the way, part of that, Travis came from this. Like in seventh grade, we had to read a, a Mark Twain book,
0: uh-huh.
4: and on the inside cover of the Mark Twain book, Mark Twain put a quote. His quote was, I'm going to paraphrase it, but his quote was that travel is the fatal enemy of prejudice. Hmm. And I was like, wow, my teacher said, you know, Jeff, what does that mean? And I said, it means that the more we get out, the more of the world we see, and the more time we spend with people who don't look like this, like us, the more tolerant and understanding of human beings we'd be, more love, less hate. Hmm. And she said, you're right. And I said, man, I want to go see the world now. Uh, So my goal was to visit 50 countries. And I've been to about maybe 92, I think that I'm up to, wow. uh, different countries. I love for different reasons, but if I had to pick, to answer your question, it's probably a combination of Australia and New Zealand
1: Yeah. that you and I have
4: talked about before. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love the people. Yeah. I love the nature. I love the sunshine. I love the animals when I'm in, and I just recently was in both Australia and New Zealand and, you know. One afternoon, after working with entrepreneurs for a couple of days, I took the day off and I was out feeding kangaroos in the, you know, in a field in Australia. And then that weekend, I was visiting the Maori Indians on their property and learning about their history down in New Zealand. I, I love being down there.
0: Yeah, and that, you have a really cool story too about uh, about visiting that Indian reservation. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah, there are. Parts of it that if you're not Maori, you can't go on their land, but they were just uh, one of the Maori. Maori's Maori came to me and he said, we'd like to thank you for the time you're giving to our people here in New Zealand, helping people help themselves. We'd like to do something for you in return and teach you a little bit about our culture and our history. And we went out of uh, Auckland, out of New Zealand to where the Maori basically reservation where their property is, but it's gated and you can't walk on that property if you're not a Maori. And so I thought that was the end of it. And he said, look, we're going to give you a special thing. We're going to basically welcome you into the tribe, which is a a formal ceremony where they do a series of chants, a little bit of a dance. And then it ends with uh, the Maori warrior doing a nose rubbing thing. So uh, (laughs) he and I rubbed noses uh, to formally welcome me in. And then I was able to go on the property and learn their history. And it was one of my favorite visits in the entire world.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> that's literally, when, when you were telling me that story earlier, I was like, man, I just I just added something to my bucket list. <laughs> get get so accepted a, into an Indian tribe. Like, that's, that's like that, now on my bucket list.
4: That's a really cool one. And I appreciated the opportunity. And I learned so much about the culture as a result.
0: Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high-quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls. There's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.